If you want to find the first time people used geothermal energy, you've got to go back a long way. You've got to go back before the first geothermal power plant in the Tuscany region of Italy from 1904. You've got to go back before the first geothermal district heating system in France in the 14th century. You've got to go back before geothermal space heating in Pompeii, back before heated baths in ancient Rome, all the way back to the early evidence of Indigenous people right here in Canada using geothermal heat for cooking over 10,000 years ago. Geothermal just might be our oldest, most consistent source of energy. But what if it could be our future? What if geothermal energy could be the clean, renewable, constant energy source we've been looking for? The very same one we've been looking at for more than 10,000 years. Today, in the second of this two-part series, we sit down with John Redfern of Ever Technologies to discuss a new breakthrough in geothermal energy here on Carbon Copy. Let's start with the basics. What is geothermal energy and how can we make use of it? Geothermal energy uh, is basically any energy pulled from the earth itself in the form of heat primarily. Uh, There's a variety of different uh, forms of geothermal energy. You can have a geothermal uh, heat pump uh, known as geoexchange where you're just using the near subsurface as a latent heat sink for a heat pump. Uh, and then you have traditional geothermal, which is usually just harvesting heat for district heating or things like that. And that's, you, that's done by searching for a aquifer the same way in oil and gas you'd search for an oil and gas reservoir. And it's involved finding that, uh, that subtle reservoir, that permeability in the subsurface, and then producing a fluid to the surface that you either you know, produce as oil and gas or you produce as a hot brine that you use for heating and or converting to electricity by going through something called an organic Rankine cycle engine. I understand that you and your team have developed a new innovative solution for harnessing geothermal energy. Tell me about the Everloop technology. Our technology is different, and we like to say it's there's a bigger difference between our technology and traditional geothermal than there is between traditional geothermal and oil and gas. That's because, as I alluded to earlier, both traditional geothermal and oil and gas involve searching for, discovering, delineating, and producing from a reservoir. Uh, it's either a brine or a, a hydrocarbon. We take out the reservoir out of the whole process uh, by just harvesting heat by conduction only uh, without any producing a fluid of any kind. And how did we do that? Where did we come up with that? Well, we came up with that because we weren't geothermal people uh, to start with. We are oil and gas people. We are people who are used to doing other tech startups. And we only got into this because we are asking a different question than a traditional geothermal um, proponent. Usually geothermal is saying, how do, I, how do I find better geothermal resources? How do I produce them at a higher power? How do I just drive down that cost? They're all thinking in terms of producing hot brine. We started out by the simple question, being in Alberta, we said, geez, is there not a better use 
for uh, all the uh, suspended but not yet abandoned well sites in Alberta. We've got, uh, I won't say dozens, we've got tens of thousands of them. That represents a huge uh, liability to restore those to their natural state. And we said there's got to be a better use for this other than just turning it back into grassland or farmland. And one of, like our, a lot of people, one of the first things we thought of was geothermal. We thought maybe we could reuse the wells. It took, about, it took us about a month to figure out that that wasn't going to work. But that got us onto the question of why does geothermal not work everywhere? Why does it only work in a few ultra-hot places? And when we started to look at that, that's when we started to ask different, different questions. Not how do we find a hotter, better resource, but how do we make geothermal work in a place like Alberta that's a sedimentary basin that's relatively uh, low enthalpy or low temperature as you would call it and what are the things that are holding that back and at the start we like any good inventor we had very little knowledge so we were asking lots of naive questions but one of the things we noticed was that when you're dealing with a low temperature environment just to get the water in and out of the rock and bring it to the surface extract the heat and pump it back down into the reservoir required a lot of energy. And because you weren't taking that much energy out of it, you were losing between 50 and 80% of the power in parasitic pump load, uh, which obviously killed the economics. So that started us asking, how do you get rid of the parasitic pump load? And by doing that, that's when we had, or my co-founder actually had the idea, Paul Cairns said, he's a finance guy, so he was uninhibited by uh, engineering concerns, he said, to get rid of that uh, parasitic pump load, what if we just drilled two wells down, turned towards them, and connected them toe-to-toe, and created this big U-loop that we could tie back at the surface? That would make a nice little loop that we could flow the water through without resistance. And myself and a bunch of other people said, that sounds like a terrible idea, but I'd done lots of startups with Paul before, so I said, but let's test it out. And lo and behold, when we started talking to some engineers who knew a bit more about this, they said, actually, it's not that bad because not only are you reducing the parasitic pump load, you're setting up something here called the thermosiphon effect, which will pump itself. So that, you know, you the inlet well, uh, with the water coming, uh, going down, it'll go down cold, it'll get heated up, and it'll come up hot. So on one side, you have a three-kilometer column of warm water, and the other side, you have a three-kilometer col- column of cold water. You know, the cold water is more dense, so it sets up this thermosiphon effect that pumps itself. So that was the start of the whole company. And from that humble beginning, we still realized what we had created was not economic yet, but we said we like the loop concept. We like the idea of creating this closed loop and not being reliant on the reservoir. And we started to ask ourselves, how do we make that closed loop better? And that's what we've been doing for the last three years. So so that, that caused us to ask some questions. How do we make this loop concept better? And again, we got lucky because in Alberta, we are in the right place uh, to search for that answer. Because when you look at what we do well in Alberta, well, we do oil and gas well, that's for sure. And we, we have taken part in the whole you know, directional drilling, horizontal drilling revolution that has opened up shale gas and shale oil and all that sort of stuff, the, the resource plays involved there. But we also uh, have a lot of experience in the oil sands, some unique experience. And what does the oil sands entail? 
It entails drilling down and creating a lot of multilateral wells where you got one vertical well and up to 40 horizontal wells off of that. And what do you use those wells for? Well, in a SAG-D environment, you use them to pump uh, steam to add heat to the subsurface. So we have a lot of engineers who are used to drilling multilateral wells and a lot of engineers who are used to calculating the thermodynamic properties of getting heat into the rock. All we asked them to do is, why don't you reverse that process and help us figure out how to economically extract heat from that same rock. So we've got a bunch of people on our team from places like Synovus who have a lot of experience in that. And they said, hey guys, take that uh, loop concept you have, but instead of having you know two vertical well boards attached by a horizontal well at the bottom, why don't you have you know 10 or 12 of those horizontal multilaterals connected to the same two vertical well bores, the same vertical well pair. And that really increases the capital efficiency of the entire thing because you're not replicating those vertical wells. And these same people came up with the idea of, you know, why are why are you casing all those multilaterals? You're not producing fluid into a into a well bore. You just want water to go through it so that it can take you know, heat out of the rocks via conduction. And so we found a way to, to uh, finish all those multilaterals without putting metal casing in, instead having a special form of sealant that we call rock pipe that costs, that in and, in and of itself cuts 50% of the cost out of the uh, development. I must say that's brilliant. But help me understand a couple things. And so to, to set up my next question, I just got a couple actually sort of quick sub-questions. The first is, how deep do you drill vertically? Okay. Traditionally, um, you know, most places in the earth, you have a temperature gradient of about 30 degrees C per kilometer. So to get down to the minimum temperatures we have in an average place, you have to go down three or four kilometers to do a heat project or to do a, a power project at the limits of viability. Um, obviously, I can talk to you a little bit later about some other technologies we're developing where we're talking about going down, you know, six or seven kilometers uh, to hotter, deeper rock. Uh, but so it's anywhere in that range, anywhere from, well, actually it can be shallower too, because in some areas of the world, uh, it's incredibly hot. Uh, certain places in Nevada and California, for example, or in Japan, some places we have heat gradients of over 100 degrees C per kilometer. Obviously, you don't have to go down as deep in some of those places. But so anywhere from one kilometer to seven to eight kilometers, but it's you know way deeper than your average, um, let's say, geothermal heat pump where you're going down you know 30 meters or whatever. And then, how long are the laterals? The laterals can be uh, you know two and a half kilometers as they are in our demo project, but uh, they'd be more likely to be about three to five kilometers in length. And of course, as we perfect the technology over the coming years, we hope to be able to make them even longer. But off one vertical well pair, if you have you know ten multilaterals and they're each five kilometers long, you know that's fifty kilometers of subsurface wellbore. Uh, so it is truly a massive radiator, and that's what makes it work. So, so help me understand this: you drill vertically two, three, four, five kilometers, and then you have horizontal wells coming out of those verticals. And they're, you know, another five kilometers long, again, horizontally. 
How in the heck do you make sure those wells meet up in the middle? Yeah, that's part of the magic, but actually, you know, it's easier than you'd think. We, the technology exists already. You already have directional drilling. You have a fair idea, sort of an ellipse of uncertainty as to where that well is to start with. And then you have some magnetic ranging technology that you put uh, in the bottom hole assembly itself, and that can detect where the other well is up to about 130 meters away. So you just got, you know, when you're taking the two wells down and drilling, you know, a few kilometers down and a few kilometers over, you've got to get within 130 meters. And then you can see, basically, you're pinging, you can see where the other well is and you can steer right into it. And of course, you don't have to hit, you know, directly head on toe to toe. As long as you're close, you can slide in slightly, you know, somewhere along the first, you know, 10 to 20 meters of that, of that well. You talked about the thermosiphon effect and its importance in terms of driving the flow of fluid through the wells. How do you know that the thermosiphon effect will happen? How do we know the thermosiphon effect will happen? Well, the easy answer now is because we've done our Everlight demonstration project and it happens. Uh, But that was always a question we had before. Um, where people would say, how do you know for sure? Well, you know, it's really 19th century classical thermodynamics. We know how fluids behave. We know how the density changes with temperature. It's simply mechanics. Now, our guys have built and third parties have built to test that, uh, you know, sophisticated computer models where you model it all in detail. Uh, and, I'd lo- and I'm happy to say that whether it's the models we made ourselves or third-party vendors did or TNO over in the Netherlands or even the uh, federal government scientists themselves, they've all gone back and modeled uh, you know, the situation and come up with almost identical answers to ourselves. Now, the harder question is not whether the thermosiphon itself will happen. I think everyone's agreed that's that's obviously part of the reality. It was more a question, there was a lot of uncertainty where people worried that the reservoir would cool off too quickly, or how did we know the power output was going to be what we forecasted? And again, the easy answer is to say, we've done the demo and it came in within 2% of what we estimated. Now, the fact that it's a slow, gentle process without many variables attached to it, because we don't care about the rock much, we don't care about permeability, we don't care about any of these subtle things that people use very sophisticated tools and modeling techniques for in the oil and gas and traditional geothermal market to predict what's going to happen. All we care about is the thermal conductivity of the rock, which doesn't vary that much, and how fast we can drill it, and what the temperature gradient is. Those are all fairly predictable, and knowing those, we can not only predict the output within you know, a few percentage points, but we know how it's going to react over the long term, over 30, 40, 50 years. We tend to design the, our uh, well configuration so it's about a 30-year plateau, and then it declines at about 0.2% after that. So these are long-lived assets. So even so, the initial gut reaction of most people is, is that really going to work, and isn't it not going to cool off too quickly? And there's way too much uncertainty, is there not, in doing something new like that? Actually, the big advantage of our system is it's you know easy to predict ahead of time. It's certain you know what you're going to get, and you know what you're going to get pretty damn accurately looking out into the future, decades to come. How much is an outdated facility costing you? Whether you're upgrading your equipment, your building, 
or finding an alternate power source. The upgrades you do now will lead to long-term savings. With the Energy Savings for Business program, Emissions Reduction Alberta is investing $55 million to keep Alberta's small and medium-sized businesses competitive. Emissions Reduction Alberta will cover up to $250,000 on projects that lower your costs and lower your emissions. In a province where local skilled trades have the expertise needed to do these upgrades, it's an investment in your small or medium-sized business and our province. Energy efficiency means more jobs, lower overhead, and a better Alberta for all of us. Find out more about the Energy Savings for Business program at eralberta.ca. On on one hand, you've got this exciting new technology for geothermal energy that builds on Alberta's expertise in horizontal drilling. On the other hand, the idea of capturing geothermal energy is not new. Tell me why this is the right time now to scale up and test the Everloop technology. Well, it's the right well, it's the right time now because we haven't had these building blocks in place even if before, even if we had the idea for the Everloop, uh, you know, five to ten years before, the economics wouldn't be there. The drilling technology wouldn't be there uh, to complete that uh, in a cost-effective manner. So part, partially it's timing. Um, I know as well it's also good timing in that there's lots of uh, resources, skilled personnel, assets, and everything else that can be reapplied to the geothermal sector who are finding a harder time getting profitable projects in their original you know, oil and gas domain. So we're, we're a nice transitionary um, technology or solution for oil and gas people. But the main thing is it just wasn't capable before. And, and we also like to think that maybe people just didn't think about it before either. Um, but you know, up to now, geothermal, it has been around for about 100 years. The original geothermal power plant in Italy is still running after all that time. And it's always sort of been a very attractive option in that it, it was always billed as green and it was billed as baseload, whereas you know, other green solutions tend to be intermittent, the scalable ones anyways, like wind and solar. So this was viewed as a nice complement to that. We were actually down talking to uh, Duke Energy, and they were talking about something like uh, called a Zelfer. We said, what we really want is a Zelfer, but they don't exist. And we go, what the hell is a Zelfer? And they said, it's a zero-admitting, load-following resource. It doesn't exist. We said, that's what we got. So, you know, that was, we started out, very interestingly, just trying to find a use for orphan well sites. We ended up getting into geothermal, and then we ended up figuring out how do we make geothermal work in Alberta. We then leveraged Alberta's you know, natural advantages in that because of all their thermodynamic work and multilateral drilling in the oil sands. And then we ended up realizing that we weren't even just figuring out how to make geothermal work in Alberta. We were figuring out how to make a Zelfer. We were figuring out how to be the first product that was scalable, green, and dispatchable all in one. And that's how we stumbled into something truly exciting. I understand that you're operating a pilot project right now. Tell me about that project. 
what you've accomplished so far and what you still hope to accomplish with the pilot. The pilot, we wanted the pilot to be here in Alberta um, because uh, it's one of the cheaper places we could imagine. And Alberta and the States are going to be the cheapest places to build Everloops. They're just not the place to get the highest priced power in the short term. And we wanted to build that in Alberta because we wanted to work with our local service company uh, operators to build, you know, an ecosystem that could follow us when we go internationally to build Everloops elsewhere. Uh, like I said, some of the first commercial Everloops are likely to be uh, overseas. But we first had to do the demo project. And what was the goal of the demo project? It wasn't to produce a particular amount of heat or power. It was to answer the questions that our prospective clients had already had for us. So whether we were talking to people in Japan or Europe or elsewhere, the key questions they had is, okay, you've proven to me conceptually how it could work. Now prove to me that you can take all these sort of building blocks that you've taken from other areas and string them together in a way that works uh, collectively. And in particular, they wanted to see a few things. They wanted to see that we could uh, intersect the uh, multilaterals toe-to-toe, one of the things you asked for before and saying, how, how the heck do you do that? So they wanted to see that intersection proven in a multilateral format. They wanted to see our sealant work so we don't have to case the well bores. So that was our rock pipe technology. They wanted to see that demonstrated. And they wanted to see the thermosiphon work. And most importantly of all, they wanted to see uh, our thermodynamics models proven in the field. And they wanted to see that we could do the whole ball of wax on time and on budget. And, you know, I'm happy to say we've ticked all of those boxes. Have you learned any important lessons or had any breakthroughs in operating the field pilot? Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a number of things. You know, every time you have something that, you know, op- sort of performs slightly differently than expected, you're, you have some learnings. And a lot of the stuff that we've learned hasn't been fully patented yet, so I won't tell you about it. But a lot of it, for example, that was unexpected, was the uh, dispatchability of the system. We knew it was going to have some ability to do that, but only by actually operating it did we realize how flexible it it was. Tell me, what's next after this pilot project? What's next is we're totally focused on commercial implementations. Uh, and uh, our first one is one in Bavaria, in Garrett's Reed. Uh, again, what's interesting when we talk about how we're taking this a solution of ours to make geothermal an anywhere solution, a scalable solution, a solution that can go where traditional geothermal didn't go before. Our project in Germany is building off a, I won't want to say failed, but a a unsuccessful uh, traditional geothermal project there, where they drilled down, spent uh, 10 or 11 years and quite a few tens of millions of dollars on drilling a couple of dry um, hot but dry wells, so that are no use for traditional geothermal, but we can make use of them. And we've got prospects like this all around the world, in the Caribbean, in Japan, where you've people have spent, you know, twenty, thirty million dollars and a good decade trying to make traditional geothermal work, and yet we can come in and we believe make it work in eighteen months to two years, in an area that was thought impossible before. Um, of course, we, you know, we're not just doing it in, failed, uh, in, in locations where there's been a failed traditional project, but those are the areas that are quickest to market because so much of the advanced work 
you know, laying out the drilling pad, doing all the environmental assessments, lining up the offtake agreements, doing the geology, all and you know, liaising with the local community. In all of these projects, that's already been done, and we can sort of slip in and complete the last mile with our with our technology. So we're exporting a made in Alberta solution to help the world decarbonize. Is that correct? That is correct, and it's happening first here. Uh, but, you know, the first really scalable options to do that, unless, you know, the regulatory regime changes and the electrical market changes a bit here, the best early places to do that are in these high feed-in tariff markets. I'm wondering if you could tell me, how has funding from organizations like ERA helped get the Everloop technology to where it is today? I mean, we're obviously very grateful because we did get considerable support from uh, ERA, from Alberta Innovates, from uh, Enercan, and from SDTC. So two of the federal agencies and two of the provincial agencies, and they deferred a lot of the cost of building that first uh, Everloop demo here in Alberta, which you know helped showcase the technology, helped prove up the technology. And without that sort of support, uh, it would have been much more difficult to get where we uh, are today. So they provided a very valuable bridge between the theory of what we wanted to do and you know, commerciality by funding a large, collectively, those four organizations, collectively funding a large percentage of that first uh, demo project. And you know, a similar sort of effort for the first commercial project could make sure that that project uh, starts here and finishes here as early as anywhere else. Uh, so that'd be, that's a good, it's a good precedent. And we're, uh, we found we're good partners um, with all four of those agencies. They were very supportive and it all went off, um, I think, without a hitch on both sides. I think uh, ERA and SDTC and Alberta Innovates uh, were all, uh, we're all, uh, all four of the agencies was, were happy with the results they got. Is there anything else that you want to say or didn't get a chance to mention? We're just, uh, you know, excited that we've, we've, we're, we have this opportunity to make this sort of impact for Alberta and for, you know, the country and the world. And, uh, you know, we know a lot of it, a lot of it's, uh, you know, fortuitous, but we think it's just amazing the way the skill set here in Alberta came together with the problem here in Alberta, the orphan wells, and ended up unexpectedly catapulting us into this much larger global opportunity. And uh, we're sort of going to certainly going to run with it as fast as we can. And what we are doing is we, you know, whether or not the first commercial project is here in Alberta. Um, you know, we are developing all our R&D and all the sort of white-collar jobs supporting that and driving that forward are mainly here in Alberta uh, because we got a great skills base here and a lot of very motivated people who are looking to transition their skills on the green side. So this wouldn't have happened unless we started asking these questions in Alberta and developing and doing the first sort of research here in Alberta. Now, of course, it's turning into more of a global effort. You know, we've got, you know, research going on in France, so in Norway, you know, down in the States, uh, all in various places, um, all to bring this forward. But it all started here in Alberta, and the core team is still here in Alberta and will remain that way. And uh, we're just hoping we can, you know, move beyond and do the commercial projects here as well, too. 
Thank you, John. It's been an absolute pleasure.